Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Uphill Goat, a mountain of knowledge about mountain bike racing, training, and backcountry skiing. My purpose with these conversations is to change your question marks to exclamation marks. So send me your questions at aj at uphillgoat.com. Today we have a special guest on the show. His name is Bruce Peck. He is a marathon runner, business owner, and a modern day stoic. He has his own podcast called Modern Meditations, where he talks about stoicism applied in our world today. And in this episode, we dive into the article, The Mundanity of Excellence, which really talks about what sets apart great and professional athletes from mediocre ones or from amateur athletes. It's a fascinating set of research, and this podcast can be very motivating to people who are looking to be excellent and maybe don't feel that they are there yet. We talk about how... In order to become the best, like the best, you have to do the things that the kind that the best people do, which also involve starting to forge your own ways and being creative in whatever you do in your art. So we hope you enjoy. I was listening to your podcast a couple of weeks ago, and you were talking about how I think it was like ten years ago you really decided. I don't know. Is that after ten years that you wanted to start running and kind of transform your your endurance athletic abilities. Yeah, it was more than 10 years ago, but it was 2010. More than 10 years ago. 2010, okay. And you mentioned how part of that process was changing the way that you ate. And um, now you, it sounds like you mostly avoid any refined sugars, processed foods, anything that comes out of a cardboard box, basically, it seems like. They're probably with some, um, I'd like to hear more about that, but... But the main thing that I wanted to ask about was you mentioned how now you don't have cravings for a cookie or a brownie, but you do have cravings for things like mangoes and apples and good whole foods. And you also talked about it being sort of a wrestle, but I want to dive further into that. So, but first just to start, tell us more about that process and what, what that's been like since 2010, refining your desires around food. So... When I grew up, my mom paid me to a hundred bucks a year to go off of dessert and sugar and, um, which seems like a, uh, like in retrospect, like the dollar amount (laughs) doesn't quite work out like a hundred divide hundred or a hundred divide by 365. I wasn't making that much money (laughs) or it wasn't that lucrative of of a thing. But it got me kind of interested in that that process of of disciplining myself. But I would go back and forth, right, um, between not eating dessert and then just pigging out a ton on dessert. <laughs> and so when I was getting, yeah, like around 2010, I just kind of realized, oh, hey, look, I'm about to start my adult life and I want to actually live it well. And so there was like a lot of decisions that I was starting to make. I'm like, okay, what do I actually care about? What do I think about? And so, um, yeah, one of those is because I just really got into a bad habit because I worked at Cold Stone. And so I'd go to Cold Stone. I'd get the gotta have it, which is like a super large thing. I would just inhale that. (laughs) And then I would uh, go to Wendy's and get like the junior baconator or whatever and like just eat all that. And it's like, I was never fat. Like I was 145 pounds at five foot eight. (laughs) So it's like... uh, but like, I definitely felt like it wasn't the type of life that I wanted to live. And it felt like kind of being, uh, just not really, not really in control of things. And so, 
around that time, uh, my friend invited me to run a marathon with him and, uh, I couldn't even run a whole mile. <laughs> like we ran half a mile and I was just like gassed. <laughs> uh, and so he got injured <laughs> and he never ran it, but then I just kept training and training. And it was just interesting because when you begin to think of yourself as a marathon runner, you start to make different decisions uh, because it's like, oh, because I'm a marathon runner, I don't want to, I'm not going to eat like a slob or I'm going to have this type of discipline mm -hmm. uh, in my life. And so it began to start to shift my mentality. And then, um, yeah, <laughs> over like a six month period, I had like the great wrestle with like sugar because <laughs> it'd, it'd go from oh, no, no, I, I'm not eating sugar. Like, sugar is, like, the worst thing ever to, like, oh, I just ate half of a cold stone cake, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, like, eventually it, it got to the point where um, I just continued down, the, down that line long enough that I began to want different things. Because what's weird about diet in particular is I think it's way more nurture than it is nature. I mean, there are some things, right? Like, why do I like fruit and why do you like fruit and why does everybody like fruit? It's like, we are like, we, we like that sugar, right? But natural fruit has a lot of fiber and other things that are great for you and like, uh, vitamins, which you don't get in refined sugars. And so what I realized too is, and I guess one other piece of this that I'll mention is I did a little experiment to try to prove this point that, uh, what you like is more, uh, nurture than it is just nature. So I hated grape tomatoes. Mm. <laughs> I hated tomatoes and I hated grape tomatoes the most. <laughs> and so one time I decided for six months, I'm going to eat grape tomatoes every morning. <laughs> and, Holy cow. um, cause I wanted to prove it to myself. I'm like, no, no, no. Like this is just nurture. Right. And so I ate it every single morning mm. and now I love grape tomatoes. Like I couldn't even, like I would cringe and I would just like n not eat them at all beforehand. But then after this experience, like I learned to enjoy it. Um, wow. And so I think that's, I don't know, the lesson that I kind of learned is we have a bit more control over cultivating our desires than, and our tastes than, than probably people give it credit for. Yeah, no, I love that thought. And I, I've heard countless, particularly middle-aged mothers say, Oh, I can never give up chocolate. Like it makes me happy. <laughs> I have to have my chocolate. You know, it made comments like in that sort of a world. Um, what what would you say to someone who who said that to you? What would be your response or your argument? Can't you? <laughs> uh, I just <laughs> like like I think it's just the decision, right? So I would really. <laughs> it's like you could you could be choosing not to have the discipline to, to give up chocolate. Cause it's like, I don't think it's going to be next week or the week after that. Um, or even months after that. Right. It, it could be a year or so, but it's just like, if you really wanted to like, well, this is also kind of, I'm not a neurologist, <laughs> but I love like, mm -hmm. uh, studying neurology and just like kind of the Craig Manning, he, he's a, uh, sports psychologist. We, we both know, <laughs> um, but he, he talks about how neurons that fire together wire together. And the corollary to that is 
neurons that fell the sink fell the link. And so we have a brain, basically mm. you have a brain that's making connections all the time. And that's how we can get better at anything, right? Um, and why when you develop a relationship somebody with somebody, like it gets more and more intense the more time that you spend with them. <laughs> uh, because you're kind of, yeah. yeah, you're repeating certain actions that make it more likely to do that. And so it's, it's the same thing with chocolate <laughs> and everything, right? Like if, if every time that you're sad, you go to a bar of chocolate <laughs> and then you release a little bit of dopamine then like you're creating this loop over and over again and your, your mind's going to start to say, oh, mm. when I get sad, I need chocolate. <laughs> but if you were stuck, like, but neurons that fell to sink fell to link, right? You can also reverse that in the same way where it's like, oh, every time I get sad, oh, I'm going to eat a strawberry. <laughs> and then you could eat the mm -hmm. strawberry and you say to yourself, oh, I, I'm so happy that I ate a strawberry and just really enjoy it <laughs> and keep repeating that. It's like, I bet you in a year, it's like, you're not going to go to chocolate. You're going to have a new neural pathway that says strawberries, right? Yeah. No, that's wonderful. And I think very hopeful for with any habit that we want to change in our lives. Um, I'm also curious, like say you're at an activity and someone comes up with some delicious homemade chocolate chip cookies fresh out of the oven and offers you one. Like what, does that still sound good to you? Is that hard to resist? Do you still ever eat treats? Where are you at with that? No, I don't care. Uh, like my desires aren't there anymore. Right. Like, and, and really mm. I, I did this very intentionally where I was just like, I'm a marathon runner and I care about this. Uh, and so it like a temp, a temptation is only tempting if it has like something about it that you want. Right. But there's nothing about yeah. it that I want. It's like, I don't like, I just don't care. Like, and, and if you talk to people from other cultures, right? Uh, like I spent a lot of time with Burmese refugees and you try to give them the ice cream and they're like mm. too much sweet. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And so like, um, we've culti we've cultivated these desires and stuff towards it, but like, it's just, I don't want it and I don't care about it. And so like everybody feels bad when like mm. they're having dinner <laughs> and they'll bring out like dessert and they're like, oh, wait, Bruce, you don't want this. It's like, oh, we feel so bad eating from you. But it's like after 10 years, it's not like there's no desire towards it. Um, yeah. And so it's just, it's, I think it's just different in, in that way where it's like, there's nothing about it that I want. That is so awesome. I'm, I'm not there yet. I wish I was, and I'm going to work on it. I want to be, in that same boat because i that's like definitely where my desire is to be that way but i definitely still have some temptation with treats mm. like i see that thing on the counter like mm, that looks so good <laughs> you know like and so i would i'm gonna work continue to work on my own refinement and try to get to that point so i think that's that's inspiring well, well i'm also curious one thing i ahead. wanted to mention go with ahead. that with that thought process is just watch your thoughts right like, mm -hmm. oh, that's so good. Like, I really, and I went probably too far with it, but I just kind of painted sugar as the enemy. I'm like, ooh, gross. Who would ever want that? Uh -huh. Like, obesity, <laughs> like all this other stuff, right? Uh -huh. Like, if, you, if every time you think about it like that, like, you'll pretty quickly, like, if you vilify <laughs> what you don't want to, like, embody or uh, have in your life, mm -hmm. it's like, it makes it really easy, or it makes it easier, I guess. Um, so it's all about, like, thinking through your thoughts and the way that you're relating to something. Um, I would think, but yeah, 
maybe maybe you could get somebody to pay you a hundred bucks a year to go off of it and that'll be enough motivation <laughs> there you go that, that'll do it <laughs> i love that yeah that whole like 30 cents a day yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so i would be curious too, to dive in a little bit to what you do typically like what are the foods that you enjoy and that are a part of your typical uh typical daily schedule yeah. So, I mean, I, like I've read a lot of books on longevity. However, I'm a business mm-hmm. management major. So <laughs> like the biology of how things work is a little difficult. It's a little, sure. a little lacking there, but like, um, so yeah. like I love to eat things that I think, um, are just nutritious in that sense. And so like, uh, like a good replacement dessert, like I think to getting people away from like traditional desserts, because if you go freeze bananas and you put them in a blender, like that's amazing. It has the consistency of ice cream. <laughs> it tastes a lot like ice cream. And if you put peanut butter in it, it like tastes like Reese's peanut butter, like ice cream. I mean, maybe it's been so long since <laughs> I've had it that I'm like divorced from it. But like, but but stuff like that where you try to and two like I'm a runner, so like I try to optimize things for for a runner type of um lifestyle and so it's a lot of carbohydrates and it's a lot of protein and it's a lot of like good fats like what you get out of avocados and tuna and and things like that so that's a lot of what my diet consists of and then fruit and vegetables stuff like that nice yeah another plug for the frozen bananas if you add an orange with the frozen bananas you've done this it's and then it's like literally actually you can even do you can even do like fresh banana orange and ice and just blend it all together it is probably the most delicious drink i have (laughs) ever tasted one day one day while i was on my mission i was like i was trying to make a smoothie but all i had left was like a banana and an orange i was like well let's just blend it together and i think i put a little bit of almond milk in it as well with the ice and i took a sip and i was just like that is the most delicious drink I have ever had. I was like, how is anyone addicted to energy drinks or alcohol? And like, this is amazing, you know? And so just just another one to try. Well, yeah, and if you... Th- it is so good. Uh, well, hunger is the best relish first. <laughs> but, just uh, but then the, the second piece is, um, like I was just going to note there, like I don't think if, you, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, here's a beer, you want it? Um, like you probably wouldn't be that interested, just kind of your background. <laughs> and so, no, yeah. uh, it, it's the same way. It's like, but some people can't live without it. Like they have to have beer and wine every single day. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like, well, why is that? And, and so it's like kind of pondering on that, like can kind of illustrate why we get onto some trains of things and, and not on others. Right. But I, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, fruit has everything you I want. I think that is a so. True. Amen. No, but I think that is a really good point you just brought up for, for those. That is a good way to sort of teach this principle where you bring up something else that you know they're not going to want and then connect it that way. Um, I like that. So so you avoid then t- – tell me, I guess, everything you avoid as far as foods. Um, so, like, mostly it's – well, like I, I read a book called How to Not Die. 
Yeah. Which, if you look at the the guy on the back of the cover, it's like, it's a little scary. Like, it's like, I don't want this. Like, I would rather be my before than his after, Uh, uh, if that makes sense. uh But like, (laughs) but like, just learned a lot about like processed meats and stuff and that. And so like, Mm -hmm. I'm a, uh, I invented my own subset of diet called Chikatarian, which basically is like, it's kind of like pescatarian where you eat fish and not a lot of other meats, but then it's like, but chicken, I mean, obviously not fried chicken, but just like chicken itself, I haven't found anything that's like really that bad about it. <laughs> um, mm. But yeah. then, yeah, so basically I, I stick to an almost vegetarian diet if I have a choice and then like only in tight social situations where I'll eat like beef or things like that. But it's only because mm. I just read about carcinogens and like processed meats and stuff from that book and so that may be a little bit more particular <laughs> about what i do and don't eat yeah okay um so it generally then just chicken and then and fish as well do you yeah fish chicken and fish and then like okay. lots of beans and, and fish and then rice and lettuce okay. and chipotle nice. ish nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah totally it's good stuff um okay no that's excellent i i am another kind of thing while we're on the nutrition side of things here you're a big runner right you're you've been talking about how you identify as a marathoner um i'd imagine fueling during the race is or and, and during training is important like when you go to your laundry long runs on saturdays what does fuel normally look like for you while you're running so i like it's called goo right like those little packets, if you've seen them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Totally. And like, I'll take one of those because my my runs, most of my runs on Saturday are like 18, 19-ish miles, like up to like 21. Um, yeah, which takes about how long? Uh, like two hours. Okay, yeah. Give or take. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and so like generally... I think like when I'm doing a marathon, like I'm really perfect about it. Like when I'm just doing these training runs, I'll, I'll just take one halfway and that's like usually good enough. Okay. But if it's like a 20 mile run, like usually the ideal, at least for a runner is taking one every seven miles or about 45 minutes. Mm. Um, so that, okay. that you're fueling your body before you hit the wall all the time. And yeah, I was talking right. with, with my coach about it and he was talking about how, um, just the amount of calories that you expend, you should you should be eating more than that while you're on the run. And so I, I didn't really realize that. So like that's what I did at Boston was I took uh, a goo every seven miles, right? In order to, mm-hmm. like I had been only taking one during a, a marathon and then I was taking three at that and I felt way better. It's like you just, like most people that bonk in a, in a marathon or hit the wall, um, a lot of it has to do with fueling and the way that they've been fueling throughout the race. And so... Uh, yeah, if you pay more careful attention to that, like you generally do it, you don't want to overdo it. Right. Like, cause I, I drink only like once every seven miles too, cause you don't want to end up in the bathroom or, mm. or other stuff like that. But that, yeah, it's, that's kind okay. of the strategy in my head anyway. That makes sense. Um, so, and when you drink every seven miles, is that just like one of the little cups, at the aid stations or like how, how much water are you intaking? Yeah. It's just usually those cups. And then too, like, okay. um, yeah, marathons are the rare exception for drinking sugar <laughs> of like, mm. 
because uh, I did I did a marathon where I didn't drink any like sugar and stuff. And then the guy next to me is like, oh, you're going to regret this. You're going to regret this. <laughs> right. And so like uh, mm. I think having a healthy amount of, or it's just like you do want. So that's the other like interesting part, I think, of nutrition um, is good nutrition depends on what you do with your body. <laughs> so like if you're running a marathon and you need really quick electrolytes, then it does that. But that's like, yeah, it's it's not it's not because I have to have my Gatorade. <laughs> uh, it's, it's more sure. about like, yeah, getting a quick fuel during the race or the same thing with goo, right? Is like goo's, I don't know. There's yeah. It, it's again, getting that quick, like, uh, like, so your body can convert something quickly into energy as opposed to having like a whole grain, whatever, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where was I going to go with that? I think that's, it's all pretty similar with cycling as well. Just in cycling, there's, we can take in more, I think because it's a smoother movement. So we don't get sighted as easily. We, I, we drink more water and we can eat a little bit more. Um, and oftentimes our events are longer, right? Sometimes we'll have races that are five to seven hours. And so that requires more food obviously yeah. kind of start eating anything you can yeah, with marathon but, if you're out there for more than three hours you're doing it wrong i'm just kidding <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> oh man maybe yeah i mean three's quick but you're right what, what's your pr it's now? 246 230 yeah 246? Okay. but just wait i'm i'm, I'm gonna yeah. so i'm running another marathon in december <laughs> and we're gonna shave another 10 or so minutes hopefully nice. off of it, so. okay yeah you got it i'm pumped about to do a, a follow-up podcast about that one what about so do you take anything on your shorter runs no not like if you're just running like a normal throughout the week run generally no i mean it gets hotter in the summer but like i always okay. run by water fountains so nice just drink a little water and and then like before a marathon or before long runs do you have any like specific foods you eat before to get the body ready i don't eat <laughs> well but like the yeah, it's not the morning of, okay. at least how my body works anyway. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think if you, I oh. mean, Boston, like, because it started at like 11, I ate a single bagel, <laughs> but like ba bagels, okay. like are one of the trusted foods in my head because there's not like tons of fiber in it. Mm -hmm. And it's just like very, or it's like carbohydrates. So your body can process it well. And that's definitely what I found is like yeah. my new, uh, my new pre-race thing that I did from Boston is just like the night before I had pad thai, but I got rid of literally mm. everything on it <laughs> except the pad thai itself. <laughs> Cause it's just like, I've had just like other races where you have more gastronomical things going on. <laughs> and it's like, uh, but I found like kind of like with, with, I've been experimenting with my diet where it's just, if you just eat straight carbs, it's like, there's no issues cause your body can handle that really well. But then if it's got like a bunch of protein and fiber and like, and I don't really believe in carbo loading either. Like there, maybe there's some advantage to it, yeah. but it's just picking out before the next or before the race day is not a good idea for if you're trying to avoid mm -hmm. the bathroom when you're doing the actual race, just cause you've eaten so much. So yeah, I'm just not a believer in it. Maybe other people are like, I do eat carbs before, but it's just, you don't got to gorge yourself. You don't go crazy. You just kind of maybe in, like off balance the diet so it's more heavy on carbs yeah would that be a correct way of describing yeah it? i mean in general you just uh yeah like you want to eat just straight pad thai <laughs> uh 
every day, Third. but yeah, like, yeah. but yeah, definitely before uh-huh. race day, it's like, I just, I just don't take any chances with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Interesting. No, that's cool. And what about after, are you a protein powder person? Do you have protein powder or how do you, what's your recovery? Mix yeah. Like? I've always been suspicious of protein powder, but I haven't found anything online okay. to like uh-huh. say it's bad for you, but it just seems like so unnatural. Right. Sure. <laughs> um, uh-huh. but yeah, like, like I think if you're trying to build muscle and recover quickly, like it's that 30 minute window, right? Like that after your exercise that yeah. you want to get something in. And so, uh, yeah, I have protein powder. I've been kind of moving away from shakes. Uh, like, like from like blending up stuff just because the nutrition profile of fruit and different things changes. Like it's still good for you when you blend it, but it's not as good for you because of um, just the structure of the fiber and different things like that. And so I've been kind of moving away to just like actually eat fruit and actually eat vegetables rather than blending them up because it's slightly better, but I'm sure I don't know how much of a difference it makes (laughs) in reality. Yeah. But it's something, right? You're trying to edge stack everything you can. So yeah, and that's, and that is, yeah, kind of like a whole goal of mine, like the, the mundanity of excellence. I don't know if you've brought that up on this podcast yet, but I have, well, actually, I don't know if I have, I I sent a video to my athletes about it, but I don't know if I've actually talked about it in the podcast, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can describe it for your listeners if you want. Please so do. Ba- basically, yeah, that'd be awesome. basically in the eighties, there's this paper that came out uh, of this guy that studied a bunch of world-class swimmers and kind of compared them against amateurs. And the, the paper was entitled, uh, the mundanity of excellence. And basically his thesis was this, that excellence is accomplished through the doing of actions ordinary in themselves performed consistently and carefully habitualized compounded together and added up over time. So basically his idea was excellence isn't actually like this mystical thing. It's, it's just doing simple actions, ordinary of themselves performed consistently and carefully over a long period of time. And it's the way that they compound together that actually creates excellence. And so he said that excellence is actually very mundane. And he gave like three different things that the, the pro swimmers did that was different than the, um, than the amateur ones. He, he said that their technique was better. <laughs> so like they, they were both spending just about as much time practicing as the other ones. <laughs> uh, but the, the pro swimmers, like every time they did their practice, they were performing it as if it was a race in the sense that they were doing all legal turns they, they weren't like just coasting. Like they, they were, they were actually doing it the right way. And the second was attitude. So how, how can you tell an amateur from a pro? It's like, well, in running, you can tell it by tempo runs. Uh, like the, the amateur's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to do this run this week. Right. And then the pro's like, oh, I can't wait to do the tempo run. Like, the, like I'm push it and see where my boundaries are. Right. And so there's definitely a pro attitude and there's a amateur attitude. And then the final one was discipline, right? Like just the, the way that they uh, discipline themselves to, to, to perform those different behaviors. So technique, attitude, and discipline. Um, hmm. Tad. <laughs> but like he doesn't say an acronym in, in it, but like that's what it would be. But anyway, but, but that's the mundanity of excellence. <laughs> and, and that's what I've been obsessed with because 
if you want to get 100% better, like you can find 101% improvements and then you're 100% better, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that actually segues really well to what I wanted to talk about next, which is within the mundanity of excellence. One of his points or his arguments is that the idea of talent is useless. I think that's what he says, right? Talent, talent is a useless concept. Are those yeah, words? something close to that. I think that's what he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was pondering that today while I was on my training ride, um, thinking about a particular rider who's been racing really, really well these past couple of years. His name is Keaton Swenson. And he basically just wins every race he does. And there's this guy that he lives with all winter and trains with all winter named Russell Finsterwald, who appears to be doing the exact same things as Keaton, yet is always like 15, 20. I mean, yeah, usually about that far behind mm. Keaton in these in these endurance races, you know, that are five plus hours oftentimes. But I was I was pondering what is Keaton doing that Russell isn't? Or is there potentially some essence of talent that Keegan has that Russell maybe doesn't? And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that idea. Yeah, because I think that's interesting. Um, I think the question is, what is talent? Mm. Right? Is it because basically what he, he goes into yeah. in the in the in his article is, oh, is talent just like an innate advantage at birth? Or whatever, uh, and so like one of the quotes that I pulled up from this um, was, "If at the basic level talent is needed, uh, it, it seems to be so low as nearly universally available. Perhaps the very concept of talent itself is no longer differentiating among performers. It's better discarded altogether." So like like basically he's saying, if um, if if talent is before, like, because you'd think that with talent, it would be before you were trained, right? So if you're born with something, if you're born with an innate sure. gift, gift, then, um, then like, the training isn't really, like, affecting the talent. Like, the training's just building a skill. Mm. And so... Yeah. So then, um, if that's true, then talent would need to be are so universal, right? Like to, to play a sport that it's nearly irrelevant because so much of it is actually training. Right. And so I think, mm. uh, right. Like, like if, if he didn't were to never ride his bike, then his talent of riding a bike is, it is useless. Yeah. Right. Because there's so that's actually, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so it's hard to describe it to talent. So that's kind of his yeah. argument. So I think it's, a, I think it's yeah. an interesting question because I don't know on the surface what the difference is, but I do know, like, I, I have other friends that train together in a super high level, and one of them just beat the other guy that usually wins. <laughs> and so, but what's yeah. different? I don't know. It's like he was injured for a year, and now he's way more hungry to win, <laughs> right? Like, his psychology mm. has shifted, but he's been winning, like, almost every race that he's done this year, and it's like three or four first place on a pro yeah. level <laughs> of, of races out of, yeah. like, an injury. And so is, is he more talented now than the first guy? Like, so it's like, like that's kind of what he gets to is just talent is really hard to quantify or even to say what it is. And so it's, it's very hard to say it's like a causal thing. Um, cause I do think another part of, uh, like is attitude. Cause one of the things that I've realized is I used to think that sports performance was only because of, um, like skill. <laughs> 
and like the best team is going to win because they're the most rigorously prepared and all this other stuff. But then there's this other side, which is like spirit, right? Is like some people mm -hmm. just want it more. Um, like yeah. you can't not have skill, but when everybody has skill, then it does come down to, I think, spirit and like who cares about winning more. And so mm -hmm. sometimes like, I don't, I don't know who these bikers are, <laughs> um, Sure, but it'd be yeah. interesting to see if one of them wants it more and cares more about it when it actually gets to race day than the other. Mm -hmm. um, or if or if it yeah. truly is... Because there's... You've heard the central governor theory, right, of the body? Where, I don't know if I have. Well, basically, there's this idea of, like, when you go out for a bike ride, why don't you kill yourself? Because, <laughs> like, you, you go super, mm. super hard, but then, like, you start slowing down at the end. But... But physiologically, your body could have gone further, even though mentally you're shutting mm. your body down and you say, no, 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 we're done. And so there's this idea that yeah. like, there's, it's hypothesized that there's like a central governor mechanism in our body uh, that just kind of slows mm. us down before we kill ourselves <laughs> uh, so we can't actually get yeah. maximal effort. And so I do feel like some sure. people, even if they're in the same physical condition, like their set point of whatever that central governor will let them do, is just a little bit higher. <laughs> um, Interesting. So I think that's another possible explanation of, of why equally trained people, one person could consistently perform better than the other, is they're letting them use more of their training and their capacity than, than the other yeah. person. But I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting topic, though, of whether talent or not matters or not and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and I think it is that that ability and willingness to let the body suffer intense levels is certainly a large aspect of, of who's going to perform well. Because it's riding the bike fast or running fast, it's not comfortable, right? The body's not just chilling. Like you're, you're breathing hard, like your legs hurt, everything hurts. Like you're, you're putting yourself through voluntary pain that's super easy to take away. Like all you have to do is go slower and the pain goes away. And so I think that's why it's like, it's such a beauty. The endurance sports are so beautiful that way because they really teach, teach us as people to push into things that are hard with easy, with an easy way out, but like choosing the hard because we like it or because it's good for us, even though there's a much easier solution. And I think that that's like, something that can be applied everywhere. Yeah, and is that a talent or is that a skill, right? And I do think Yeah. <laughs> I do think people some people are naturally more that way. Like they say that redheads have a higher pain mm -hmm. tolerance, so redheads are always like <laughs> Really? I think no, you made that no, up. Yeah. That's a real thing. You can google it, but I, I don't I, yeah, really? I don't know well, if it's actually no true, that's but hilarious. Like, <laughs> Bruce is a redhead, so it's not If you can't hear their red hair. Um <laughs> but like, but, but yeah, I don't know. It's like, I do think for, for myself, like over time, the, the skill of being able to tolerate pain has increased, especially by being surrounded by yeah. people that it's like, they don't care about pain. <laughs> uh, and so like, <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, I mean, and I think too, like, which is the better, like, if you have to make a hypothesis about whether talent matters more or skill like, which is the better operating philosophy for you as an athlete? <laughs> it's like, if you think it's all about inborn talent, um, it's like a fixed mindset. And if you think it's about, mm. uh, like skills that you can develop and cultivate, you have a 
uh, what's the other one? Like learning mindset or a growth mindset. Yeah. So I think that's why I would err on that side is just like, I assume that I can learn how to do everything better. (laughs) And so far it's been true. Uh (laughs) That's awesome. And kind of back to this idea of talent as well. I think it's interesting. I think he talks about the similarity of excellence and I'm pretty sure Craig talked about it in his class as well, Craig Manning, how we use talent as like a, basically an excuse or, or a way to separate themselves from us. We say things like, Oh, they're just built different. Right. Or they're just on another level. And we, we like give the credit not to the things that they've done, Mm. but to just their natural abilities. And that's so limiting in because what we fail to realize is, Oh, I could be like that person if I did what that person did. Right. Maybe not exactly, but I could get pretty close. Right. Like, and, and I think you have to look at our, your natural abilities too, and, and build off of those. Like if you, you know, I think you talked about this, how you're, you're what five, eight, right. And one thirty-five. Yeah. So like running is a good sport for you. Probably wouldn't be best for you to go and try to be an NBA athlete. However, if you were dedicated to be a really good basketball player, you could become a really good basketball player. Maybe not play in the NBA, but if you did all of the things a really good short basketball player did, you would become a really good basketball player, right? Like, don't yeah. You think- well, I think it is leaning into like what you're naturally like better off at, right? <laughs> but yeah, like, because like, yeah. how many people are born with Michael Phelps' arm span? I mean, more than one, sure, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. So true. it's like, um, yeah, like. Like it, there's, there's definitely like some natural things that you're more disposed to. Right. Which I looked it up. If you look up, like if you have uh, Bard or chat GPT put together a little table to you for you of the fastest okay. marathoners in the world, guess how many of them are over yeah. five foot eight, <laughs> zero of the top five. And really? none of them, none of wow. them are more than 140 pounds either. <laughs> so it's just like, wow. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. it's like, but it's but it's like some of them like it's just being um yeah it's leaning into what you're actually good at and then the other thing that I was going to say to that is when you see somebody that's better than you do you envy them or do you emulate them and that's always the question in in my mm-hmm. head cuz like when everybody talks about oh instagram is is so toxic like all these people living perfect lives doing all these other things right it's like toxic or <laughs> inspiring Right. Like if they're on the beach with their perfect family, it's like, (laughs) why don't you go to the beach with your perfect, like, you know, like, and that's, that's the same thing with like, uh, Strava, like people getting off of Strava. Right. Because it's like, Mm. oh, well, yeah, it was just like, it was really discouraging to see everybody run so fast and and all this stuff where it's like, isn't it inspiring? Like, that's when I, that's where I started to learn that like, oh, look, I'm a slow runner. (laughs) Like I didn't have any conception (laughs) that I was really slow until I got on Strava. I'm like, oh. But yeah. like, do you envy people or do you emulate them? And emulating them mm. is way more challenging than envying them. Like, cause it requires you to work. Yeah. Envy is very passive. Emulation is very active. Mm. Very true. Yeah. I love that thought. I think that's, uh, yeah. What, what a good mindset shift. And I think that's something you can catch yourself doing really easily as well. If you were to, 
see something on social media and be like, oh man, I wish I could just have that. Instead, be like, how can I go yeah. get that? Like, what are they doing? Right? How can I do that too? Um, and then and then get to work. And I think that the the results come. And obviously, like we talked about with your nutrition, they don't happen immediately. It's not like if I see someone who's retired with lots of money, I can decide that in tomorrow <laughs> I'm going to be retired with lots of money, right? Like it's going to take time, you know, but just as an example, um, but it is very possible to replicate and repeat the successful actions of other people. Yeah. And, and one thing that I've, I've been learning recently too, is just being comfortable in, in uncertainty. And so like, hmm. so the thing is, is like, we look at, so for me, it's been like, I've been starting to run with faster and faster runners all the time. And so like when I, when I show up on yeah. these runs, they're like insanely fast. <laughs> uh, and so I show up there. I never ran in high school. I didn't run in college, like for a team. Right. And so then now I'm with like some of the fastest, like literally these are some of the fastest runners in the world, or at least in the country. <laughs> I mean, like one of the guys was like yeah. top 11 in Boston. <laughs> uh, and so it's like, that's very fast. <laughs> and so, uh, like I'm showing up with these people and I don't know if I can actually become as fast as them, but I also don't know that I can't. And so mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful thing where it's just like, I don't need to know for certain either way. It's like, I'm just going to show up and run as fast as I can. And like what I've been doing basically is like, how long can I hang on with these guys? Like, so last week, um, I did a 19 mile run and the first 12, I was able to hold on to them, uh, which was way nice, better than yeah. the first seven <laughs> or, or whatever, like when I started out. And yeah. so, um, so that's, that's the thing is like every week I'm just like, yep, <laughs> I beat my record. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's like, I don't know, <laughs> like, will I ultimately be able to run with them the whole time? I don't know. Um, but it's like kind of just letting you, letting yourself go and, and resting in uncertainty. And so like, I do think a lot of people, um, before they'll start on stuff or before, before they'll push themselves, they feel like they need to know that they can do it or have the whole path illuminated or those other things. But it's just like, if you have a, a, a will to do something and like kind of a disposition to, it's like, you should just start because <laughs> you don't know that you like, yeah, you may not know if you can, but you also may not know if you can't. And so the little blue engine I think is probably the, the best example. If you remember that story, like, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It just says, I think I can, I think I can until it accomplishes its goal. Because like, it doesn't say, I can, I can, I can. It's just, I think I can. <laughs> uh huh. Because you could be wrong. You can fail. Like, you cannot be able to do things in life. And that's also like. Yeah, no, it's true. It happens. So you also can like let go of that, but just being willing to like live in that place of uncertainty, go after what you want. Yeah, I think that, and that, that, leads well into kind of another aspect of this idea where I think we 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 often like we can do the things that successful people do but in order to be the best at something I do think you have to get into the creativity zone like you have to go you have to move on from copying to experimenting mm -hmm. and to like actually creating new ideas there's this awesome movie I'm trying I'm forgetting what it's called right now but it, it goes through some of the greatest athletes in a variety of sports um, and talked about what made them amazing. It has like one of the best high jumpers ever. It has like Serena Williams. 
Uh, this football player, I should know his name, but I'm really Tom Brady. <laughs> no, who else? Is I don't there? know. And then they have like a, one of the <laughs> yeah. best hockey, one of the best hockey players ever. I don't know. I don't remember his name either. But anyways, and that's what they talked a lot about is how they like reshaped the game that they played. Like they they created new ways to do it better. With endurance sports, it's a little bit trickier, I feel like. It's, like, pretty straightforward. Like, running, you just run. But there might still be subtle things. But, they, like, one of the easiest examples is um, the high jumper they show. He was the first person to, like, jump over oh, the pole. The falls very flop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that guy, they talked about him and how, like, he was watching. and was like, huh, I feel like there's a better way to do this, right? And he experiments and tries it and then creates that. And then he becomes the best high jumper in the world until everyone else copies him, you know? And so, well, well yeah, yeah well, I think with the Fallsbury flop too, it's just, it's thinking about things in terms of first principles. Right. Um, and then too, mm-hmm. what, Oh, this has been a, yeah. Uh, there's been an interesting thing that I've been looking at. So, but first the, uh, yeah. Thinking about things from a fundamental level, like who are the best basketball players it's the best basketball player. The best basketball player is the one that can get a ball through a hoop the most amount of times. How do you get the ball through the hoop? Right. It depends, and it also depends on the era that you're <laughs> in, right? So what's been so this totally. has been the interesting thing that I've been learning about football is if you watch football like over like a course of a decade, it'll swing from being super into passing and quick scoring. And then it'll shift mm. into uh, like super heavy running teams, and it's like, why is this? Mm. It's it's because. So think about it this way: if you do a lot of passing, what do you need? Um, you you need a lot of uh, you need a lot of quickness on your team, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and so oh, it, you, uh, maybe we'll start with running. This is easier to explain. <laughs> <laughs> So okay. like yeah, if if everybody starts out running, then how do you defend against a running offense? Well, you get a whole bunch of like really big linebackers, and you break the line, and you get the quarterback. So it's like okay, well if everybody's like has these big lines, so they're they're fat and slow <laughs> comparatively, right? Then it's like oh okay, so we need to do more explosive plays. So like it'll start to shift to teams like throwing the ball down the field and taking advantage of all the big fat players. Mm. But then it's like, Oh, once, once everybody's like doing these explosive plays, then you're like, you're going to get more nimble players and you're going to put them out there. And then it's like, Oh, we should go back to running because (laughs) uh, it's, it's more advantageous to run because you don't have big lines. (laughs) And so, interesting. so so it's like every player that is the best in a certain era, like it's also like, where are they at in the, in the age of the sport? Right. Because, like, mm. nowadays with running, right, like, you're right, running is the same thing, but we're in the era of, of super shoes, right? So everybody's got, like, these super, mm. like, spring shoes, and um, there's still strategy on, like, when you push yourself in a race, when you're drafting off of other people, much like biking, right? Totally. Um, so there's, there's yep. definitely nuance to it, and there's different people that would be better or worse depending on the era, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's reading the room, I think. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, I hadn't ever thought about that before, the, like, the shifts in what works in different sports like that. I think that's fascinating. I feel like that's that's worthy of, like, a PhD yeah, study. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you could really dive into that. <laughs> um, 
And then he can become like a, a super sport consultant where you go to teams and be like, hey, look, this is what's happening well, right now. Like, this is how you're going to win. Well, yeah. I, get this, I get this from watching a billion Nick Saban interviews. So it's like, you're not going to, like, mm. th- that's why Alabama has gone back to a running offense. Like, they've had this, like, super explosive, like, pass offense for the past couple years. But Saban's, like, always reading the room and always updating his, his offense to the time. Wow. Even though they may or may not be the greatest team this year, it's a building year, okay? So, but like, uh, mm. but it, but it's like, <laughs> but true people that are really watching the sport, they're not just thinking, like I used to think there's a best strategy in sports, but I think you're right. Like it's a novel application, understanding who are your opponents, what time are we in, and what strengths do we have naturally? And it's kind of thinking through those different things in order to perform well in competition. Yeah. And then getting creative, right? I think like the more I think you see this, like we we oftentimes don't think of sports as art, but I think in a mm. lot of ways they are. Like it's 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 a performance. Like ultimately we're performers, you know. And like whether for ourselves or for an audience, I don't know, know that that matters. And I think when we recognize that and can allow kind of our artistic side to come out in our athletics, it opens up a whole new new way of performing mm. like it allows you to see things differently like at least in, in mountain bike racing for example oftentimes there'll be lots of line choice on like a downhill section you can there's like 10 different ways you could go in like a 30 foot section right what's going to be best and and you see creativity come out of riders like especially in like professional downhill races you'll have you know 40 of the world's best riders and They'll write all 10 lines. <laughs> like there's not like a superior way, but it's like, hey, who's going to r- combine these into the the best way? And I think a lot of that is creativity and it's applying that. Um, or, or with like running, it could be perhaps the creativity of, of your tactics and of your drafting and of your, I don't know, creating that whole race scenario isn't super, it isn't always cut and dry. Like it has to have some, some level of flexibility and some level of creativity to be able to consistently work well. Like if you do the exact same strategy every single race, it's not necessarily always going to yield the same results because you're racing different yeah, people, yeah. right? Like it's the, it's changing environment, you know? And so you have to be able to adapt to be able to make that consistent. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because like if you compare a LeBron James who's allegedly one of the greatest basketball players of all time, and Michael Jordan, who is the greatest basketball player right. of all time. I'm not biased. But like, <laughs> but like for Michael Jordan, there's this, this nimbleness, and, like, and then mm-hmm. LeBron is a tank, right? Like, but yeah. both work, right? And so I do think one part of it is, is figuring out who you are and like, like it's mm-hmm. more of a fit thing. Like, how does this work with how I am, right? Because yeah. like, for me, like with Boston, I ran it very like systematically, <laughs> uh, and, and like, mm-hmm. like every mile was kind of coordinated because I know my body and like what I want to do with it. And then I cut down, like I did yeah. negative splits towards the end of it, right? Which is just like shortening each mile. Nice. But it's like I knew kind of how my body yeah. would perform in it, and so I think that is a part of it where it's just like, um, it's tying it together as as how you would do it. And I do think sports is entertainment, <laughs> ultimately. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I yeah. think that's yeah, it's a good point of of doing things in a certain style makes you distinct, and then also I think helps. 
like it's like the Roman army. Like sometimes people would be defeated by the Roman army ever before they ever faced them just because of the reputation, right? Like mm. with Alabama, wow. it's like you play Alabama and you play Alabama's reputation. <laughs> Uh-huh. And so I think yeah. kind of like that iconicness, like Steph Curry's threes or Michael Jordan's dunks, um, that plays into the the legend of the player. And you're also playing that yeah. when you when you face them. So I think yeah, there's probably a lot of great reasons to be a little bit more creative. And two, it's like if you're if you're zigging when everybody else is zagging, there's probably a big advantage to that, right? True, absolutely. And I do love that you brought up that there's still that aspect of like knowing how you perform well. Um, I had a coach who would always tell me, race the course, not the riders. Mm. And I think there's there's like a really, really valuable principle to that. But my response would be, it depends on the course. Because some courses, I do, I should absolutely forget there's other racers and just race the course. Because like it is kind of irrelevant. Like, drafting's not important. Ta- like tactics aren't important. Like I don't know. There's, there's there are courses like that in mountain biking, but there's other courses where if I ignore the opponents, I'm not <laughs> gonna do well. Right? They're gonna draft and they're gonna work well together, and I'm just gonna be like in my time trial mode, and then they're gonna be gone. <laughs> you know? And like and so like there's you have to kind of I don't know. I think there's and that is kind of almost where the art perhaps comes in too is recognizing and finding kind of the the tension and balance between those two things and recognizing where your limits are and where to rate or build and and, and perform around the people around mm. you because at the end of the day in, in a race at least situation or or a game situation most people are there to like i mean i guess it, it could be either to get like a pr to finish or to get a result as far as like endurance sports. And, and I feel like with where I'm at, usually it depends on the race, but oftentimes it's to get a result, which means I can't like, depending on the course again, but there has to be some aspect of understanding where my opponents are and how I'm going to race against them with them for it to make the most sense while still racing my race. Cause I think Craig Manning talks a lot about this as well, how, um, people playing to win versus people playing not to lose uh. and people who play to win, they like, they play their game, right? Like he, he talks about tennis, all like in tennis, they play to their strengths. They don't play to their other person's weaknesses. And I think that that's such an interesting, you can maybe do both, but if you focus on playing to your strengths, that yields the best results. Um, Cause then you're not reacting. You're, you're the one in control of the game. You're being, you're being proactive in the way you're playing. Um, and, and in like a mountain bike race, there's a lot of things I can do to set that up. So for example, I know for myself that I like to be chased more than to chase. So I would prefer to get a gap in the beginning and have the whole field chase me than let someone get ahead and try to chase them. Not everyone is that way, but that's one of my strengths is I feel like my flight is greater than my <laughs> fight. And so... <laughs> I, I flee better, you know, and so so I can utilize that tactic by strategically attacking at certain points to get ahead, to then trigger my flee, you know, my my flight from these from these racers. Um, 
And I feel like that's how I can control the race, how I can play to win rather than play not to lose. Yeah, I think that's a big thing is is learning to play on your strengths. Kind of like the five foot eight, hundred and thirty five pound thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because yeah, like, um, yeah, my brother in particular loves to like, oh, let's play basketball or let's uh, let's arm wrestle or let's like do this, and then I'm always like, let's go for yeah. a run, right? Like where it's just, um, uh-huh. <laughs> it's like yeah, like, uh, like knowingly not optimizing for a lot of things. So then you can go really big on what you mm-hmm. do, right? So it's like, for me too, it's like the mundanity of excellence. Like I love that. And that's why I love running is because you can put it on a checklist. You can say 10 miles, you can know the pace. It's like, it's super quantifiable. It's against yourself. It takes a ton of discipline. Like these are all things that I love. Yeah. And like they're, um, yeah, like either I could I could try to try to be a basketball store. I could try to be these other things. But if you don't play to your strengths and just kind of own it, where it's like, yeah, I could go try to like, be the best at all these other things and the average of everybody, or I could just try to be really, really good and really, really obsessed with like one thing. Um, and so I, I do think that's like a great example of just, yeah, play to your strengths, play your game, um, because it gives you the best chance of, of winning. Right. Um, and then, yeah, that not yeah. losing thing is, is super interesting too. Cause like, you'll see that as well. Like when people just start going on like kind of defense and like they'll, they'll pull the hammer out, which uh, yeah, my, my hero, or yeah, Saint Saban, as we call him. Okay, but like he never, he never, he never puts the brake on, uh, and mm-hmm. he never like relents because it's just like your job is to like uh, beat your opponent and or like he says every play is a universe in itself, and your job is to always just beat mm-hmm. the person in front of you every play, no matter what the scoreboard says. Yeah. <laughs> and so that means when you're up by 50 yeah. and it means when you're down by 50, it's like you're playing with that same level of intensity, which is why last year, mm. like they didn't make the, the national football playoffs last year, but they lost by a combined total of four points <laughs> in the whole season. Wow. Right. <laughs> so that's yeah. two field goals, um, which yeah, they didn't mm-hmm. win those games, but like, at the end of the day, like that's an, that, that shows a lot about their competitive drive. And so I do think that's like another piece of mm-hmm. it too, which is just the, when you play to your strengths, when you keep playing regardless, then you get the best outcome that is possible, which isn't always winning. Right. No, and I love that. And I think in an endurance sport application, I think it can be easy. Like I've done this before, unfortunately, where if once I realize I'm not accomplishing my initial goal, perhaps I kind of let off the gas, right? I give in to the pain and I kind of like, like, well, there it is. Or like, or maybe there's five minutes left and I'm in no man's land. I don't like keep pushing all the way. I kind of just like coast on it, right? Those kinds of things. But I think what that would look like if we were to, if I were to do that well, would be to always like race the whole race the best I can. Right, never throw in the towel, even if it doesn't change the spot that I get. Even if coasting the finish line is would yield the same result. But I think it teaches you something that can be applied in, in situations where it will change the result. And it just changes your mindset. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> which this wouldn't happen probably in mountain biking, but like if if you were like in the uh yeah, like I I don't know, like you just don't know what's gonna happen too, right? It's like the first place 
they could be doping <laughs> and they're disqualified, right? Or, or like yeah. the, front, the front pack. Right. It's like they were all going to finish and they all wreck into each other and like you're the only one that could serve around them, right? Or like, totally. so it's just like you never know. Or it's like the sponsor saw that you pushed to the finish and now they like want to, you know, so it's like there's different things that can happen, but it's just like giving a maximal effort. And also it leads to your reputation, right? Because if another person mm-hmm. knows like, oh, oh, AJ is the kind of person that doesn't give up. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, if you beat me, yeah. you're really going to have to beat me. Like, that's just a different thing as opposed to yeah. um, just, like, throwing in a towel. On the other end, like, I've seen some, like, marathon finishers that, like, they're just so beat up and throwing up and all this other stuff. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> it's cute that you crossed the finish line, but, like, <laughs> just, you know. <laughs> sure. So, Maybe go train a little bit more yeah, yeah. and then come back. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's like I don't think I don't think finishing at all costs is always the right answer. But I do think like if it's just a True. mental thing where it's like either I push to the end on this and kind of give my full effort here, or I don't. <laughs> um, like if if you're coughing up blood, yeah. that's another thing. But then, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is really the distinction, and I I think it can even happen the other way. Like I've had races where I've been pretty far ahead in the front. And it's kind of like, well, okay, I won the race. I'm just going to kind of like chill these last mm. little bit. You know, I'm not going to push as hard because it's like, you know, but I think if, if you just really like, and I guess it was, and I think this is why I also flee better is because in my mind, they're always closer than mm. they are. Like if I'm in front, if I'm behind, they're always further away than they yeah, actually yeah. are <laughs> in my mind. Like that's just like my default way of thinking. And so that helps me a lot if I'm in front because when I think they're only 10 seconds behind me, sometimes they're actually a minute and a half behind me. And so I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, and then I like finish and I'm like, Oh, I actually have lots of time, you know? So, um, I think that that, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a side tangent. No, I think but. that's, I think that's a good point. Cause it's like <laughs> never letting your, well, <laughs> yeah. Like never letting your preparation be determined by your opponent or your effort. Like, um, that's something perhaps I just want to throw this out there that BYU football could learn from. <laughs> Cause like, you'll notice, mm. you'll notice like BYU when they have a really like tough opponent, they'll prep like crazy. They'll get like all like all this other thing. And then it's like when they're facing some nobody or whatever, like they can get whooped, <laughs> uh, because they're always, they're always yeah. letting their level of preparation be determined by their opponent. Whereas like. If you hear other teams in the way that they talk about their opponents, even if they're facing Walla Walla Washington, they're like, well, we really got to be worried about X, like this, this quarterback and this defense. And we never know that because it's like, it's always respecting your opponent and preparing as if you're playing the national championship every week or every time that you're racing. Um, Obviously if you have a long season, there's like other things that you consider, (laughs) like as far as like how much you want people to get beat up and stuff, but it's always, being prepared for the, yeah, not letting your opponent determine your level of preparation. And so it's like, if you, mm-hmm. which is hard, I think, because naturally like me too, like, um, if I'm running, <laughs> if I'm running down a trail and I see other people on it, I want to pass them so bad that like, I just start speeding up and do it. But if I'm running by myself, it's like, Oh, whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh, which I'm trying to work yeah. on just, no, I always like whether I'm running with the pros who are going to push me and whether I'm running by myself, I'm going to give the same level of effort uh, for, for the run that I'm doing that day, you know? Uh, but it's tough. It takes discipline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and such a relentless discipline. 
right? Like it's it's day in and day out, like every training run or training ride consistently. You know, it's like it's like what the whole fundamental thing of the identity of excellence is combined together over time, habitualized, and I don't know what's yeah. the other one. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> perform consistently, carefully, habitualized, compounded together, and added up over time. But it's I don't know. When I hear that yeah. though, I get so excited. <laughs> like to, right, to tie right. their shoes as as the best person in the world would tie their shoes, right? And then to go on a run and to do it exactly as it's like laid out, like it makes me so excited mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because it's like uh -huh. just doing all these little things better. It's like, yeah, like that's what I realized. It's like, oh, like I could be a really great runner if I just do all these things really great because I mean... I mean, yeah, like uh, one of the things that he says in this, which I think is an interesting um, kind of point, is his buddy, after he wrote the paper, this is what he said. So after three years of field work with world-class swimmers, having the kind of close contact that Becker recommends, I wrote a draft of some uh, book chapters full of stories about swimmers, and I showed it to a friend. And this is what the friend said. You need to jazz it up, he said. You need to make these people more interesting. The analysis is nice, but except for the fact that these are good swimmers, there isn't much else exciting to say about them as individuals. He was right, of course. Mm -hmm. What these athletes do was rather interesting, but the people themselves were only fast swimmers who did the particular things that one does to swim fast. It's all very mundane. When my friend said that they weren't exciting, my best answer could be only simply put, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i've talked about this before with some people how like i think the best cyclists simply love moving their legs in a circle <laughs> on a bike but like in, in its most fundamental thing they can really thrive in it which allows them to train in any circumstance in any location whether it's inside in the winter and they, it's not a, like a grind for them. They're not like white knuckling their way through training. It's actually like genuinely something they enjoy. The very simplest thing. Like anyone can enjoy a beautiful ride in the mountains with beautiful fall <laughs> leaves, right? But like it takes a different person to enjoy sitting down inside on the trainer in the winter and riding for three hours, staring yeah, at the yeah. wall. You know, like, like that's, those are different people. And and I think that that kind of goes back to sort of that modernity of excellence idea where like the true excellent people learn to enjoy the most mundane parts of mm. their training. Yeah. And it goes back to Steve Jobs quote too, that used to be on my alarm clock <laughs> that I, mm. I had, I had this little alarm clock that I'd play in the morning. That was like a montage of all these different, like, wait, was it, was it the one yeah, that was yeah, on your yeah. podcast? <laughs> yeah, it was phenomenal. Do you not have it no, anymore? No, I have it. I just, I don't wake up to it. I, I wake up to uh, my uh, Apple uh, Watch, so then everybody else doesn't wake up. <laughs> but like, uh, nice. <laughs> might not be as inspired. <laughs> but basically he says, like, the, <laughs> what we need is great work, and the only way to do great work is to love what you do. And he says, if you haven't found it mm. yet, keep looking. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know it when you find it. Don't settle. <laughs> and... I, I think it's wow. an excellent thing because how do you come up with the iPhone? How do you come up with the iPad if you don't love it, <laughs> right? Like if, if, you, if you're not excited yeah. about like technology and progress and growth and it's like everything Steve Jobs did ultimately turned out to be great work, but it's because he loved what mm -hmm. he did, right? And I think that's the same thing in sports is just 
the only way to be a great runner or a great cyclist or a great anything is to love it. Because everybody else that's out there white knuckling it, they have to fight every day to get up. Whereas like you already have this massive advantage in that you just, I love it. <laughs> like I just I love getting on the bike. Yeah. And like two, like everybody's like, oh my gosh, you go run 14 miles in the middle of winter and all this stuff. It's like, yeah. I it's like I love it. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that, that really is just the best answer. It's like, wait, like you are a full-time student and you're trying to work and you're training 14 hours a week. And it's like, yeah, because I love racing my bike and I love performing well. And that's what it takes. And that, and I love it. You know, I love it all. And I, and I love the training rides, you know, they're like, they're very therapeutic and everything. And, um, yeah. Or like, yeah, I don't know. There's, it, it, it's almost like, and I think there's, there's other things in our lives that are like that too, where maybe we see people as like, why do why do they do that? you know, why, why does that person paint for four hours a day? Like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, whatever it is. But I think that does kind of boil down to a lot of just what we enjoy doing. And I love that Steve Jobs. It reminds me of the other quote. I don't know who said this, but like, um, how does it go? It says, I think it's like, if you want to change the world, find what lights you up. Because what the world needs is a world full of lit up mm. people, something like that. Um, and I think that that's kind of a similar idea, right? Where the way the world is going to get better and the way we're going to get better isn't by all going and doing the same thing, right? If we all were to become doctors, it wouldn't be very beneficial. <laughs> or if we were to all become, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. But what we need is people who find their passion, their drive, perhaps their calling, and and then run with it. Right. And really create something wonderful from it. And that's what's actually going to impact the people around them in the best yeah, way. Yeah. Because they're going to be doing it. It's work. so interesting that society wants you to be average. <laughs> they want you to drive a Honda mm. Civic and work a nine to five job and, like, like you know, <laughs> do all this other stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's just interesting where it's like, it's the crazy ones. <laughs> uh, but not just necessarily like the mm. crazy ones, but it's like, it's the people that are willing to actually find, like do the hard work to find what you love. Cause that's actually like a hard thing for a lot of people. Cause it's not like an obvious answer. Like you don't wake up one day and like um, do that. And then I think it's, it's an intersection in between what you're great at and well, I guess for vocation in a way is like what you're great at and what the world needs. <laughs> uh, like some, some intersection mm -hmm. of those two things. But, but I just feel like, uh, yeah, finding what you love and committing to it, um, yeah, it really does drive the best results <laughs> for, for everybody across the board. Mm -hmm. And then um, it really is the only way to do something truly great. Because um, I've never met anybody that's done things on a high level that doesn't love it. Like, I don't know if, <laughs> if, if you have yeah. or at least love some aspect of it, right? That's true. You know, that is interesting. And I think there's people who who are good at what they do and they hate it. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, 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 like for example, maybe, maybe they've been trained their whole life to be like a lawyer and they're good at being a lawyer, but they just don't like mm -hmm. being a lawyer. Right. But, or, or like, or, or I think it's like the example of how like dentists have like the highest level of depression <laughs> because there's a lot of people who become dentists because they think that's how you get rich. And, and then they, they're not actually have no passion for <laughs> dentistry. Um, and so, 
I think that there's there is that sort of element, but like you're saying, I think we're not talking about that. That we're talking about true excellence, true creation of something beyond an ordinary an ordinary job. Yeah, and and too, like if you read Andre Agassi's biography, like the tennis player, like he says that I, I hate tennis in it, mm. <laughs> but. Uh, really? <laughs> but like, I, I think he says that <laughs> and he even says, oh, people say you just say that. <laughs> it's like, no, but I really hate tennis. <laughs> um, but I think there's definitely a part of it that like drove him and that he had a passion for. Right. Uh, cause I do think like one definition of the word passion is the willingness to suffer for something that you love. <laughs> um, which I don't think is mm-hmm. the only definition of passion, but I think it's an interesting one because like, like a love of something like helps you get through all the hard parts of it. Right. (laughs) Um, like when you, when you love someone, you choose to put up with everything else that's difficult about the situation. Right. (laughs) Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's the same in sports. Like I think it's, it's a competitive edge at the very least (laughs) to love what you do. And I think the greatest all love it, even if some good ones don't, (laughs) Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is excellent. I think we better wrap up there. Um, but this has been very engaging, very lots of things to think about. I hope that the listeners enjoy this one because it's good stuff. Any final words, Bruce? Um, just a, <laughs> I guess, if you ever want to take a listen to my podcast, it's called Modern Meditations. It's got a little hammock on it. <laughs> it's really good. We talk, we talk a little bit yeah. about... St- would yeah, we talk about stoicism, which is just a philosophy that I think pairs well with kind of sports psychology. It's kind of like ancient sports psychology and just like a way of living life. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, yeah, this has been a great conversation. It, it's cool that it's cool to interact with you because you have such a passion for what you're doing with like mountain biking and you actually have a decent amount of, uh, yeah. influence in the biking community. Like I see your Strava posts, <laughs> um, and I <laughs> want to emulate them, not just envy them. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Sweet. Well, we'll have to have you on the show another time. This cool. has been fun. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Bruce.